brothers in the Dharma. I want to break out, batter down the door, go tramping black heather all day on the windy moor, and at night in hayloft or under hedge find a companion suited to my mind. I want to break through, shatter time and space, cut up the void with a knife, pitch the stars from their place, nor shrink back when, lidded with darkness, the eye of reality opens and blinds me, blue as the sky. So that's Sangharakshita in 1967. Uh, Yes, Sangharachita in 1967, very much in the spirit of the Mahasiddhas, of the ecstatic wanderers that emerged in 8th, 9th, maybe a bit earlier, century India. Very much in that tradition, in that spirit. Sangharachita in 67 had just about begun to start what we called then the Friends of the Western Buddhist Order. It's a year before the first ordinations. And he describes this period, the period after being expelled from the then Indian, uh, British Buddhist establishment as being in the wilderness. Being in the wilderness. And what a wonderful place the wilderness was. Where everything became clear and where he was really trying to get away from all of the, if you like, uh, stultifying traditions that had even developed in early British Buddhism and even the stultifying traditions that he'd perhaps operated in, in India where he was a very, very, you know, very pure, very pure-minded Buddhist monk, uh, communicating the Dharma extensively, practising the Dharma, and here he was in an entirely new situation, late 1960s London, late 1960s Britain, and he talks about really trying to practice the Dharma as it appears in the earliest Buddhist scriptures where you have the Buddha and his disciples. No monasteries, no heavy organisation, in a sense no doctrine. Uh, The Buddha just communicating his realisation directly to whoever he counted, whoever they were. Yes, other wanderers, but also, you know, ordinary men and women, farmers, prostitutes, courtesans, um, farmers, businessmen, uh, political leaders, and so on and so forth. Whoever he met, he communicated the bliss of liberation, the way to liberation directly. And it has to be said, of course, that Buddhism was very, very successful in India. And by the 8th century, the 9th century, you had huge Buddhist monasteries, wonderful centres of learning and culture and, uh, that, that are rightly celebrated. However, it also has to be said that Buddhism, in some senses, bricked itself in, cut off from the people, cut off from the world around them. Sangharachita didn't want to cut off from people. He was told by a leading Uh, British Buddhist dignitary, think of yourself as the Buddhist vicar of Hampstead. Uh, Well, you didn't want to be the Buddhist vicar of anywhere. He wanted to communicate with people. And in the same way, you find a whole movement in India trying, in a sense, to get back to what the Dharma was really all about. Living a life of renunciation, living a life totally, regardless of your circumstances, living a life of inspiration, totally inspired to live the Dharma and to break out, to break out and to go into the the, the markets, go into the bazaars, go into the villages, go into the streets to, well, celebrate what you've discovered. And these are the siddhas. This is the origin of Tantric Buddhism. The Mahasiddhas, sometimes called the 84 Mahasiddhas, are the kind of mythical origins of Buddhist Tantra. And they are a really odd bunch. You know, they're a really, really odd bunch. You know, they're not... Yes, some of them are kind of monks. uh, But often they're monks who've sort of broken their vows. Horror of horrors. You get Virupa, Mr. Ugly. Because he's fat, pot-bellied, bulging eyes. But he's also called Virupa because he's broken his precepts. 
but he's regarded as one of the highest standing tantric adepts. You get all sorts of other people. I'd love to spend time just celebrating all the different siddhas and their encounters with people. One of the messages of the siddhas is that anybody can practice. If you think you can't practice, think again. If you think you're uniquely flawed, think again. One of my favourite stories is of a very fat boy. Came from wealthy parents and they doted on him, fed him all, you know, delicacies. And he got so fat, he couldn't get up. And the parents thinking, well, who's going to look after us in our old age? And he isn't. They just had him carted off to the cremation ground. So there's this huge, fat boy, well, now a young man, just sort of lying there in the cremation ground, left by his parents. And along comes a sitter. And he said, oh, what, what are you doing? You know, what's up? And he said, well, I've just been left here. I can't do anything. I can't move because I'm so fat. And he said, well, aren't you going to beg? You've got to at least beg for food. He said, well, I can't, I can't go and beg because I can't get up. I'm too fat. And uh, they said, they said, look, all right, okay, uh, uh, I'll beg your food, but do you think you could meditate? Do you think you could practice? He said, well, as long as I don't have to get up, um, <laughs> I'll do anything. So I said, said, okay, I'll teach you. It's a great teaching, isn't it? You don't have to get up. So he said, I want you to concentrate in front of your nose and visualise a sphere as small as a mustard seed. Yeah, yeah, I'll forget that. As long as I don't have to get up and you bring me food. And so he does that, really concentrating on this sphere, the size of a mustard seed. And the next instruction is to see hundreds of thousands of Buddha fields uh, in the mustard seed. And of course, he has a breakthrough. He attains Mahamudra. He's enlightened. He's blissed. Um, and he's realised. I don't know whether he can get up after that or not, but... <laughs> You know, so, but if, if you're having, if you have any doubts about, you know, how worthy you are of practice, you know, whatever you look like, whatever you feel like, you know, however unhappy you are, think again. The siddhas aren't interested in your complaints. They just know that as a human being, you can gain realisation. So they're out there. They're out there on the streets. And one of my favourite stories is and a very famous story, is of a great uh, abbot of Nalanda named Abhayakirti. And one day he was sitting outside his monastery uh, with his back to the sun, interesting detail, looking into the books of grammar, epistemology and logic, in all these sort of arcane Buddhist wisdom books. And then a terrifying shadow fell over him. And he looked round and he saw a dark woman, old woman. Very, very significant, this, this, the, the, the colour symbolism, dark and black. You know, very often the siddhas are dark and black and they encounter people with those, from those backgrounds. Because, of course, in India, when you have a reference to colour, it means marginalised, discriminated against, outcast, so-called And for the Buddhist tantrics, the really interesting places are outside of the mainstream. It's in the sort of liminal that the creativity happens. So here is a very outcast person, a widow, an old woman, utterly rejected. And how does she appear? Her hair was fox-coloured and dishevelled, her forehead large and protruding, Her face had many wrinkles and was shriveled up. Her ears were long and lumpy. Her nose was twisted and inflamed. She had a yellow beard streaked with white. Her mouth was distorted and gaping. Her teeth were turned in and decayed. Her tongue made chewing movements and moistened her lips. She made sucking noises and licked her lips. She whistled when she yawned. She was weeping and tears ran down her cheeks. She was shivering and panting for breath. Her complexion was darkish blue, her skin rough and thick, her body bent and askew, her neck curved. 
She was humpbacked and being lame, she supported herself on a stick. What an appearance. And Naropa, uh, you know, turned to her, looked at her and she said, Venerable one, what are you looking into? He said, I study the books of epistemology, grammar and logic. And the old woman said, do you understand the words or the meaning? And Abhayakirti said, who becomes the Siddha Naropa, he said, I understand the words. And she started to dance with joy. She started to kind of swivel on her stick and laugh with ecstasy. And uh, thinking he'd please her even more, he said, I also understand the meaning. And she said, well, she didn't say, she just burst into tears. She just started sobbing uncontrollably. And he said, why did you laugh happily when, you, when I said I understood the words and weep when I said I understood the meaning? And she said, I laughed, I was happy, because you, a great scholar, didn't lie when, the, you, under, you, knew, when you said you understood the words. But I was sad when you said you understood the meaning, because you're lying. You don't understand the meaning at all. And this was a tremendous shock for Nara, but you have to understand, being the abbot, one of the abbots of Nananda, he was a great dignitary, and here he is, being told by an outcast woman, that he doesn't understand the meaning. He's got all this intellectual knowledge, but he doesn't know the meaning, the real meaning of life, you could say, or the real meaning of the Dharma. So he said, well, who does know the meaning? She's really got inside him. She's got into him. Who understands the meaning? She said, my brother knows the meaning. And he said, well, where can I find your brother? And she said, find him yourself. (laughs) And just vanished. Just vanished. This incredible apparition. It's very interesting what happens next. This is a a real encounter with reality. This is very, very much a feature of Tantric Buddhism. You're constantly confronted by reality. It really brings you right up against what the truth is. And what he started to sing, he sings this great song. I don't think I can read it all. It's an amazing song, very famous song, about the dukkha of life after this encounter. It begins with the incredible lines. Sangsara is the tendency to find fault with others. Sangsara is the tendency to find fault with others. An unbearable fireball, a dark dungeon, a deep swamp of the three poisons, and on and on and on uh, like that. Another very famous slime. It's, it's the taste of honey on a razor's edge. So another one. So it's a real insight into how bounded he is, even though he knows everything about the Dharma, but really, he's caught, he's bound in the samsara, and it's this old woman telling him how bound he is. And he just can't hang around, he's just got to go and find uh, her, uh, where she said her guru is her brother. He's got to go and and find him. And uh, the rest of the life of Naropa, or, or a big part of the life of Naropa, is going on this journey, this strange symbolic journey, this it's almost like a, a strange dream that you in, enter, even a sort of nightmare at times, as he tries to find his, uh, the, 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 the brother of this strange old woman. And at last, I won't go into, there's all sorts of trials and tests, and at last there appears a dark man dressed in cotton trousers, his hair knotted in a tuft and with protruding bloodshot eyes. This is Tilipa. This is the old lady's brother. This is the guru Naropa has been searching for to find the meaning who will give him the meaning of the Dharma, the meaning of life. And he says immediately, why have you not... Why have, why, have you, why have you eluded me? Why have I not been able to find you? 
You know, I've searched and searched. I've entreated you. That's the first thing he says. Antilopa says, I've been with you since the old leper woman came to you. You know, in other words, she was him. She was him. In other words, reality has always been there. It's always been available if only he'd been able to wake up. And then there are even more tests and trials uh, as Tilipa constantly confronts Naropa's egotism, constantly confronts his self-grasping. This is the thing, the Siddha constantly confronts. This is what the Tantric tradition is all about. The main problem, you know, in all Buddhist tradition is our egotism, is our pride, is our conceit. We might think it's other things, but the main block between us and opening up to reality is our self-identity, the way we separate ourselves from others, from life, uh, where, where we believe and we have all these sort of trips and stories that separate us out from, well, from real love, from real knowing, from real understanding, from direct tasting uh, of the great bliss of two-in-one, as the tantric tradition calls it. Uh, Sangharakshita met a tantric. I mean, there were his Tibetan teachers, of course, but he met a tantric who was kind of operating within the Hindu tradition, but when you read about it, there were sort of rumours that this man was 600 years old. This was in South India. 600 years old, and Bhante even wondered if he was a sort of leftover from the great Siddhas. And uh, he was one-eyed. When He'd been told about this teacher by people he was with, and uh, when they went to see him, he suddenly appeared at three o'clock in the morning in the middle of the forest in this uh, building. He appeared and... You know, Panti got a shot because uh, he had only one eye. And he says, it gave his features, already, already grim and terrible enough, so startlingly villainous a cast that they seemed more appropriate to some notorious highwayman or pirate of the old days than to a celebrated ascetic. At the same time, and all this registered instantaneously, Yalahanka Swami had an expression of compassion I had not seen on any other human face. An expression of compassion I had not seen on any other human face. So this really sort of grim figure, one eye, and yet great compassion. This is very much the spirit of the Siddhas. And they, him and his friend met with Yalahanka Swami and... Yalahanka Swami told him about his, you know, about his teaching. He said, the main problem is egotism. What blocks people from reality, from realisation, is egotism. And this is what Yalahanka Swami said, or the way Bhante tells it. Egotism could be overcome only by the prolonged experience of samadhi, by which he meant not meditation in the ordinary sense, but by a superconscious state in which all sense of separative individual selfhood was transcended. In the training of his disciples, he said, his sole concern was to eradicate egotism by inducing the samadhi experience. Since there were two different forms of egotism, pride and humility, he had two different methods of dealing with people. With those who were proud, he behaved more proudly still with those who were humble with even greater humility. Thus both were made to realise how egoistic they actually were. However high you go, he concluded, addressing me directly, Bhante, I shall always be above you. However low you go, I shall always be below you. The idea that humility was just as much a form of egotism as pride represented an important new insight for me, and I never forgot the Swami's words. A bit earlier on, uh, you, you, you hear his sort of how, how he could be, Yalahanka Swami. High-ranking government officials, who in most ashrams were received with semi-divine honours, fared no better than anybody else. If they showed the slightest trace of arrogance or condescension, he would start abusing them the minute they appeared in the doorway. 
what do you want here? He would shout roughly. Think you're doing us an honour in coming here, don't you? Think you're a big man? Well, we don't want your bigness here. You can get out quick. Only if he survived this fusillade was the visitor permitted to enter and asked to sit down. I mean, you, you have it very easy arriving at Padmaloka, don't you? You really do. Well, none of you I know are arrogant in that way. Sometimes, knowing his reputation and anxious to escape rough treatment, visitors would deliberately adopt an attitude of profound humility. But for tactics of this sort, the Swami was more than a match. Springing to his feet, he would welcome such people with every mark of deference, saying how greatly honoured he felt by their visit, and what a blessing it was for his ashram to have such an embodiment of sanctity within its walls. As soon as they were seated in the place of honour and impressed to take tea or pan or a cold drink, he would beg them with folded hands to give him and his disciples the benefit of their extraordinary wisdom on their protesting their unworthiness. Um, on their protesting their unworthiness, oh, uh, as of course they invariably did. He would only redouble his demonstrations of respect until the end they collapsed in agonies of embarrassment (laughs) and begged for mercy. Jeremy, maybe you should try that as well. (laughs) So you really, I mean, mean, uh, you know, so these two forms of egotism, pride and humility, sort of, you know, really, really powerful. I mean, there's a third nowadays, isn't there? the view that we're equal to everybody. That's a, that's a pride, isn't it? That's another version of egotism. And in fact, in Buddhist tradition, pride is, ha, has that threefold de- uh, definition. The view you're superior to others, the view you're inferior to others, the view that you're equal to others. In other words, you've got to get rid of all views about yourself and others and just come into direct uh, communication direct love and friendliness and openness. Anyway, Naropa has many trials uh, with Tilipa. All sorts of trials, all sorts of terrible things that he goes through. You know, uh, I won't go into them all because they're, I mean, they're really strong stuff. And at the end of every trial, there's Naropa in a heap, you know, feeling as though he's really, you know, really been battered down by his teacher. Uh, uh, Tilapa says to him and this this wonderful line this is what he says to him when Narapa has been burnt um, this log of your body believing in an eye deserves to be burnt Narapa look into the mirror of your mind the mysterious home of the Dakini look into the mirror of your mind the mysterious home of the Dakini. The Dakini is so important in Tantric Buddhism. The Dakini is the mind. The Dakini is the inner companion. Uh, The Dakini can manifest in all sorts of ways. The old woman at the beginning, she was a Dakini. There's a depiction of a Dakini. If you want to know what a Dakini looks like, look at her looking up at Padmasambhava. Much better to have an image of the Dakini. So he's saying, look into the mirror of your mind, the mysterious home of the darkening. When egotism starts to dissolve away, when it goes, the mind, the real mind, the true mind, the pure mind, the enlightened mind, can really show itself. And we can intellectualise about the mind, the nature of mind, we've had a lot of that, lots of ideas, lots of thoughts. The mind is a darkening. Stop thinking about the mind and look at the darkening. What does that tell us about the mind? Meditate on the darkening. The mind is naked in its true state, in its natural state. It's naked, it's authentic. It's not covered with any habitual stuff, any habitual trips and stories. It's just raw, naked, authentic and real. There's no boundary to it. It's naked in that sense. It's red in the sense it's love, it's passion, it's great compassion. 
It's naked and empty and compassionate and blissful and inspired, looking up with a kind of natural, unfeigned devotion and reverence uh, to the blessings descending from the teacher, from the guru. Uh, It's blazing. The mind is blazing and inspired on fire. It's completely aware of its own insubstantiality. She has garlands of severed heads and bone ornaments, and yet it's vividly present. So this is what we've got to start looking at. The guru, the siddha, the siddha guru, will confront us, you know, will challenge our egotism until it fades away so that the mysterious uh, home of the darkening, the mind, can start to blaze forth and we can live from that. Eventually, the, dark, the, the darkening takes us to the lands of the Siddhas, takes us to the ultimate city, takes us to attainment. City means attainment, magical attainment. The highest city, of course, is enlightenment itself. It takes us to the attainment of the five jnanas. Jnana is usually translated as knowledge. It can be translated as primordial wisdoms. Very, very hard to understand what the jnanas are. Uh, And they're embodied in the five Buddha forms that we can see in here, Akshobhya, Ratnasambhava, Amitabha, Amogasiddhi, Vairochana. So I don't have to describe them because they're here. The five, we, we usually think of wisdom as seeing things as they are, which of course is wonderfully expressive and direct. You know, when you see something as it is, it's a great metaphor for something being real. But there's a problem with it because it implies a seer and a seen. And we have to move from dualistic knowing, vijnana, which is the usual word for consciousness, to jnana, non-dual awareness, primordial wisdom. The, the Siddha Guru takes us there, the Dharkini takes us there. So instead of uh, thinking of enlightenment as a seeing, think of it as a land, as lands you inhabit. Uh, because the jnanas, which are a description of enlightenment, are the complete transformation of everything, our skandhas, the elements, the poisons, the entire world itself. In a parting song of Padmasambhava, when he leaves Tibet, when he leaves his disciples and goes off to we know not where, well, we do know where because he says where he's going, he keeps talking about going to the lands, the realms of the jnanas. That's where he's going. He said, I'm going away. I leave now for the land of the mirror-like wisdom and so on. So it's so important that we, that we really try to, to, to dwell on this. Forget about you know, this idea of wisdom as something we possess. It's much better to think of wisdom as something we inhabit We need to sort of abolish, if you like, self and other when we start approaching jnana. So a writer who who Bhante uh, uh, put me onto uh, really tries to evoke the realms of the jnanas, the realms of the Buddhas. This is Chogyam Trungpa Rinpoche. And um, I was thinking, I was about to give a talk on the lotus symptom a long time ago. Uh, just after I was ordained, I'd been asked to give a talk about the meaning of the word Padma and all its symbolism. And Bhante said, have a look in Trungpa Rinpoche. Have a look at what he says about the Lotus family and about all the other families. And I did. And he's very expressive. So this is in honour of Bhante and Trungpa Rinpoche because he gave, gave me an entrance into thinking about Jnana not just thinking, contemplating jnana in this way. 
So first of all, I want to talk about the land of the mirror-like jnana. This is the land of the Vajra family, the land of the Buddha Ikshobhya, the deep blue Buddha of the East. It's the sun rising in the depths of winter. It's dawn on a very white winter morning. Everything is snow and ice. And in the sunlight, everything is absolutely clear and sparkling. Hatred has been transformed into absolute clarity. A cutting through clarity. A Vajra clarity. An adamantine clarity. But the sun makes everything sparkle and shimmer. Rupa, form, hovers in emptiness. Emptiness creates form, is expressive. Uh, Form is expressive of emptiness, the emptiness of vast space. So the Siddha Guru is the Vajra Guru, the Guru who cuts through all your solidity and confusion. His Vajra is so precise, it is hard-cutting, abrupt and extraordinarily skillful. There is no drama to it. He just takes the ground from under you without your knowing it. You try to stand up and your legs have gone. I've had some very interesting communications with Sangharakshita over the years that have been like that, where an apparently innocuous conversation has just taken the ground away. When you chant Vajra in the Padmasambhava mantra, this is the realm that you enter. You enter the land of the utter clarity of the mirror-like wisdom. You enter the Vajra world. Then there's the land of the Ratnakula, the dual family. There he is over there, the yellow Buddha. The rich, deep yellow Buddha, the dual-born, the dual-creator. Here we are in the southern realm in autumn time, in harvest time. We're in a world of warm gold sun, of abundant fruit, of reddening apples, of golden and russet leaves, of grapes hanging from boughs, of bees buzzing. The mood is abundance and beneficence. The earth is giving in abundance. It is a realm of rich sensation. Sensation, Vedana, is transformed into the richness of touch. There's no impoverishment. There is a wealth of feeling. There is gratitude and faith. There is no conceit, no separation of the ego, just an immense natural pride in life. The dignity of being a human being, the deep human feeling of wanting to share and to give, and to give away to everybody. The sun is shining happily on a golden palace roof and on a dung heap with no discrimination. There is a sense of profound sameness, a deep sameness. It's the same life, the same humanity, the same living beingness in everything and everybody. We're here in the realm of the Siddha Guru himself, the sovereign of the visible world, as Padmasambhava is described, filled with riches and abundance. The Guru, the Siddha Guru, naturally gives and blessing. His hand is open. He doesn't have the tight fist of a bad teacher who holds things back, as the Buddha calls it, but the open hand of teaching to everybody. So the Guru's nature is why the Guru is depicted wearing richly embroidered robes. He is like a king, available to everybody. No one is excluded because everybody is profoundly the same. Everybody and everything are blessed and enriched naturally and easily. There's no effort to bless. When, bless, when somebody talks about I need to, you need to bless or I need to bless, it's ridiculous. Blessing is natural. This is the realm of refuge. The three jewels are naturally given. There is a feeling of tremendous reliability 
of immense generosity. Nothing can let you down here. So when we chant the Padmasambhava mantra through the word guru, we enter the rich and abundant land of the wisdom of sameness. Then there's the land of the Padmakula, the lotus family, the realm of the red Buddha Amitabha, the great western realm, the great western sky, the sky opening up like a lotus. Here it is springtime. It's early spring. It's the time of unfoldment and new life, of buds and blossoms and of birdsong. Everything is opening. Nature is becoming flamboyant again, showing itself again, revealing itself, showing its distinct colours and scents again. You can feel the life emerging. There is vitality, fire and warmth and passion. Passion, desire transformed. So there is real attention. We notice all the particularities, as you would in a lover, but in all things, the distinctness of the blossoms on the trees, bird flight, the beauty in faces and movement. It is a time of love, of the intensity of love, of passionate interest, of the Siddha Guru's love. True Siddha Gurus are the real friends and the greatest lovers. They love what is deepest and particular in us, distinct in us, They seek the real union, the real meeting, the precise, the exact meeting. Here, everything arises as the great symbol, as the Mahamudra. This is the place of bliss, of the union of self and other, the union of bliss and emptiness. This is the realm of the natural yogi in the paradise of nature. This is losing yourself in the great bliss and the great love. This is the place of the song of the great tribal Siddha, Shabara, Shabara Padmasambhava. And this is his song to the Shabara girl in the high mountains. Higher and higher in the mountain the Shabara girl lives. This Shabara nymph flaunts a peacock's feather. Around her neck a garland of red gunja berries. She scolds her husband. You crazy Shabra, you drunken Shabra, don't raise a ruckus or cause such a commotion. Don't you know that I am your own wife, Sahajasundari, lady naturally beautiful? The canopy of diverse beautiful trees is in bloom. Their branches stroke the sky. The Shabra girl bearing a vadra and wearing earrings sports in the forest alone. Shabra prepares the entire cosmos as his bower. The bed of great bliss is made ready. For this Shabra is the real lover. With lady selflessness as his delightful one, love lights up the night. Afterwards, he chews the essential betel nut of the heart and the camphor of great bliss thus receiving beautiful lady selflessness into his throat. The rays of great ecstasy light up the night until dawn. Hey, Shabra, with your guru's word as the tail feather, with the arrow of mind, with just one shaft, pierce, pierce, highest nirvana. That crazy Shabra, drunk on the bliss of two in one, raging with that bliss, has wandered into the ravine between the high mountain peaks. How will this Shabra ever get out? Different kind of Buddhist text. (laughs) When we chant Padma in the Vajraguru Mantra, this is the world of love that we enter, the world of the Padma family. Then there's the land of the all-accomplishing wisdom, the northern realm of Amoga Siddhi, the infallible accomplishment, the infallible siddhi, the infallible attainment, the land of the karma family, the family of spontaneous activity, enlightenment activity. This is the green realm, 
where the sangskaras, the volitions, are transformed into spontaneous compassionate activity, spontaneous and precise, the realm of upaya, skillful means. Here, there is no envy, there is no competition, just total natural absorption in creative activity, total action. There is nothing left out, there is no alienation created by belief in an ego, just complete absorption in the dance, in the dance of Maya, the dance of illusion for the benefit of all. And we are in the north, at the height of summer, in the forests of the north, the dense green forests. We are close to water. Water and land are, are merging. It is rich and fecund. Earth and water and sky are merging here. It is marshland, fenland even. This is the isthmus, the hinterland in the north, teeming with life. There is the sound of thunder and a strained wind is passing through the trees. It is warm and close. The sun does not set, for this is the place of the midnight sun of green lights in the sky. This is the realm of the union of opposites. Here, Sangsara and Nirvana are meeting and blending, and the Siddha Guru is the green Siddha, moving mysteriously, subtly, invisibly. He leaves no traces. He is the trackless one, yet affecting extraordinary change and transformation. Here are the long eyes of Amogasiddhi in the twilight, in the green, moving like a spirit, a ghost, a stranger. The Siddha, the greatly accomplished one, affecting magical transformation, moving freely through all the worlds. The Siddha Guru can seem so strange, so close to us, yet so far away, so present and yet so elusive. Amoga Siddhi's animal is the kinara, which means literally, is it a man? Because it also looks like a bird. Completely fearless and unconcerned with convention, the Siddha wanders the forests and cities of existence, singing the songs of Sahaja, ecstatic spontaneity. The Siddha Maitripa sings, the thought-free yogin is like a child, like a bee in a flower garden tasting every bloom, like a lion roaring in the jungle, and like wind blowing where it will. If his mind is trained in attention and discretion, his behaviour is immaculate. If there are no checks upon his mind's effusion, the yogin behaves, behaves like a divine madman, or in the Zen tradition, without troubling himself to work miracles, Suddenly, dead trees break into bloom. Or, in the Sufi tradition, with no effort, bitterness is made sweet. Copper becomes gold. The dregs become pure wine. Pains are turned into medicine. The dead are made alive. A king becomes a servant. A servant becomes a king. When we chant Siddhi in the Padmasambhava Mantra, this is the realm that we enter the green northern realm of Amoga City. The land of the Buddha Kula, the Buddha family, the central land, the land of Varochana, there he is in the centre. The land of the wisdom of the Dharma Dhatu, the union of all the wisdoms itself. Ignorance, unknowing, is exhausted in the vast open space. The wisdom of the Dharma Dhatu is space, Trackless, open, emptiness. It is desert and wilderness, but filled with endless possibility. It is the vast sky in which you can see in all directions. It's all-round awareness, panoramic awareness. I remember being with Bhante Sangharachita on retreat in India, up in these very, very bare mountains, Uh, He'd just done lots and lots of Dharma talks and he was there on retreat to ordain people uh, around lots of crowds and seeing so many people. Tremendous activity. 
But on that retreat, he was consent, content to sit in his bare room and just look at the desert fastness from his window. On all sides around, this is him, one could see the flowing contours of the bare yellow-brown mountains with their curiously contorted peaks, range after range to the horizon, as well as the remains of hill forts. Below a few vague patches of cultivation showed green against the prevailing yellow-brown. Apart from performing ordinations, giving a talk, and seeing people, he said, I spent the greater part of the retreat very pleasantly doing absolutely nothing, just looking out of the window at the yellow-brown hills or at an unfamiliar bird fluttering among the rose bushes, enjoying the brilliance of the sunshine and the blueness of the sky and emerging only for order meetings, a question-and-answer session and, of course, the private and public ordinations. So the Siddha Guru is one who can sink naturally into the great space from which all emerges. It can be disconcerting being around someone who is contented in space, who is the space, who has the ease of space. That can be very, very frightening. Because here, all conceptualization is exhausted in dharmata, Dharmaness, realityness. Consciousness is just an open ended, boundless luminosity. This is the basic ground, which is no ground. This is the space of vast, luminous emptiness, which is continually expressing itself in endless creativity for the liberation of all who do not know this truth. Some final words. I began this talk, or early on in this talk, I referred to an old woman speaking wisdom to a conceited monk. And I want to end with another old woman, an old woman that I met in India. I lived in India for, for, for some years and I'd go on Dharma tours. And one such tour was in an area called Nasik in North Maharashtra. I went with order member friends and interpreters and so on. And uh, we went to a town called Manmad. Manmad. Manmad is a railway town. It's actually quite famous as being a Sikh holy place, but, you know, the, when, the, when the British were railwaying um, India. They set it up as a big junction between north and south and east and west. So Manmad is one of these railway towns. Most of the most of people there are employed in the railways, or they used to be. A lot of Buddhists employed in the railways in those days. And we'd gone to this place, and I was told that there was a huge amount of conflict between the Buddhists in this, in this town, in this city. They're weird places, railway towns, because it's like you just sort of People are just thrown up against each other. But big Buddhist community, not to do with our own order and movement, but there was a lot of conflict, a lot of political conflict, a lot of factionalism, and I was asked. In those days I was wearing robes, I was, I was, uh, I, I was, I was a Buddhist monk, I suppose, in Anagarika. So I was asked, please give a talk on, on how to create harmony in the Sangha, how to create harmony among people. So, of course, I did my best with my very good interpreter, turning my words into really direct, punchy Marathi, uh, making it as down-to-earth as possible. And it was, a, it was quite an occasion. You know, people had really uh, you know, wanted to welcome me. And there's photographs somewhere of me disappearing under garlands because everybody wanted to garland me, and they were coming so fast I couldn't take them off quick enough. I thought, I thought I was actually going to suffocate under <laughs> these garlands. Anyway, we did the talk. It was, it was, you know, really, you know, as usual with these things, tremendous sort of atmosphere and, you know, went back to the, the lodge I was staying in. And the next morning I was sitting in my bedroom with my interpreter and um, an old woman came in. You know, classic nine metre sari, as they call it, country sari, the old 
women wear um, wrapped around. And she was the cleaning lady of, of, the, of the lodge. So she was squatting, you know, line face, squatting, sweeping the floor. And she started to mutter and talk, started to just talk and talk. And tears were rolling down her face. And my interpreter said, go out, don't disturb us. And I said, no, she, she, please translate what she's saying. She's, she wants to communicate with me and I want to know what it is. And she, she was saying, according to my interpreter, we should listen to you. We should all listen to you. She was a Buddhist lady. She'd been at my talk the night before, probably illiterate, I would think. And she was a Buddhist lady and she was saying, they should listen to you. You're, you're giving the proper teachings of the Buddha, of Dr. Ambedkar. We should all be in harmony like this. Why can't people be in harmony like this? Why can't people come together around the Dharma? And it was really strong. You know, I felt she was almost... I couldn't help feeling she was sort of telling me off. You need to be doing more. That seemed to be the implication to create harmony in the world. And of course, it's not just Buddhists at that time who are in conflict The world is in terrible conflict, we know, don't we? There's a war. There are wars right now. One can't not be aware of the horrors going on in the Middle East and in Ukraine and in so many parts of the world. We can't ignore them. We enjoy freedom and peace. So many... Right now, so many innocent people, old and young, are suffering terribly at the hands of others. In our own society, there's so much injustice and violence and conflict. We cannot ignore that as Buddhists. I'm not, I don't have any political position, absolutely none, by the way. But as Buddhists, we cannot ignore this world. And we have to realise that at the root of everything, of all this violence and conflict, is egotism. And all the attachment and dogmatism and cruelty that arises from that. We need to replace our Buddhist practice in that context. The Siddhas are embodiments of the powerful magic of love of metta, of wisdom love. Metta is no flabby sentiment. It's not just our sort of fumbling efforts to get a little bit of friendliness going. We have to realise and invoke a powerful force that can actually affect the world. The siddhas, the siddha gurus, are the agents of this love. So we need to follow them. We need to take that love with us, out onto the streets, into the cities, into our lives, into our family lives, into our community lives, into our workplaces, into all the areas of existence. Perhaps, I pray, I hope, that will make some difference living from that love in this benighted world. Thank you.